Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome into the podcast. We are continuing going through the New Testament and we've been hanging out in Romans for a number of weeks. We spent spending more time deliberately on this book. Mm -hmm. It's such an important book. And last week, Rob and I had a discussion about Romans 9 through 11 and all the controversies that come with that. So we recorded an episode with Gary Burge and Daryl Bach, two great scholars uh, who have contributed greatly to the, uh, you know, to evangelical scholarship over the, you know, the last generation. Great conversation with them where they were able to engage the conversation. Rob and I, we tried to stay out of this as much as possible <laughs> and interjecting a little bit. What are some things that we might want to address that popped up in the conversation just to kind of define terms or, or whatnot? Yeah, again, you might want to have your Bibles out as you did last time when we went through Romans 9 through 11, just to kind of a number of scriptures are going to be uh, referred to. I Some of the terms that came up in the conversation that you might want to be aware of, let's just throw them out there now so you know as you listen to the conversation, you can understand are dispensationalism and covenantalism and supersessionism. So let me kind of address supersessionism, and then I'll let you comment on dispensationalism mm -hmm. and covenantalism, and then I'll, I'll conclude. Supersessionism is just kind of another word for replacement theology that we defined in our last episode. Of, and if you haven't listened to it, you might want to kind of go mm -hmm. back to that episode because it lays a foundation for this conversation. Supersessionism is basically the idea that the Jews have been superseded, meaning they have been replaced by the church, that God has given this opportunity for Israel and the Jewish people to believe. Jesus came along and some of the Jews have believed and they became part of the church, but the rest have been superseded and therefore replaced. And now God's focus is upon the church. And so Gary brings up that, that particular point. And then the other points of dispensationalism and covenantalism, which are kind of two sides of the equation. Although uh, Daryl has actually written a book on progressive dispensationalism, which is kind of a, almost a middle term mm -hmm. uh, expression. But go ahead, Vinny, why don't you kind of give a shot at what those things are, and then I'll comment a little bit also. So. Yeah, I mean, it, to be super low shelf, let's leave a lot yeah, of that. Because this could be Because our, our listeners aren't aren't like the brightest people. No, I, I meant for myself, because I'm, I, I'm <laughs> I low shelf. Uh, yeah. But there are kind of two ways of reading and understanding the Bible. So dispensationalism is going to try to read the Bible more literally when possible. Uh, they're going to hold very strongly to uh, not only the literal reading of scripture, but then also that there's a distinction between Israel and the church. And so the promises made in, in the Old Testament to Israel would continue on to physical Israel, which obviously would play today, into yeah, today, national Israel, yeah. national Israel, which would play into the idea of supersessionism or replacement theology. Uh, that's where, you know, if, if, if that's a, a, a extremely strong value for dispensationalists, that there's a distinction between Israel and the church, obviously we wouldn't want to say the church replaced Israel. So um, that's in, in a nutshell, that's, you know, what dispensationalism. And that's where Daryl comes from. So if you yes. listen to Daryl Buck. Uh, that Israel still has a role in this. Yeah, he, he, and he has actually helped develop a certain uh, reading of dispensationalism, and we won't get into that now. Yeah. Uh, we could actually link uh, the book that he edited for yeah. Views, uh, Covenantal and Dispensational okay. Theologies. We could edit or uh, link that in the book. The other view, and if you know, if we're going to just put them as two, it's more nuanced than that, but we could call more of a covenantal view where it's reading uh, how God works through the covenants uh, through the Old Testament, culminating in Jesus, and so because uh, I don't want to say more of a Christ-centered view, because Daryl would argue, he would argue that I have a Christ-centered view, uh, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's more of reading the Old Testament covenants through the lens of Jesus rather than uh, so it's reading backwards rather than only reading forwards in a linear way. I think that I don't know. Would you say that that's a, a just a, yeah, a good that's, intro? That's very fair. Way? 
If I were to add something to it, I would say that the dispensational view might often kind of chop the Bible up a little bit, saying that there's not this necessary continuity between the stories, that Jesus kind of comes in and brings a new phase to the thing, but the promises the Jewish people in the Old Testament still kind of hang out there. Yeah. As, a, as you mentioned, literally, so the literal fulfillment of land and covenant promises that the Jewish people still remain. Whereas a covenant theologian would more mesh those all together and say, mm -hmm. no, they're all together. There's no distinction. Land promises and family promises and inheritance promises are all fulfilled by Jesus. As we just, we addressed a little bit of that in our yeah. Romans 8 episode. So, uh, excellent. Thank you. So I think you're going to love this episode. I, I Seriously, this was a blast for me to sit. This is similar to like the Michael Gorman one where I just wanted to sit and keep listening to it all day. But unfortunately, yeah. I got to pick up my kid from preschool. <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome in. We are continuing in our series through the New Testament. We've been hanging out in Romans for the last number of weeks. And uh, in our last episode, we discussed, Rob and I discussed chapters 9 through 11 and many of the controversies that exist surrounding the topic there. And this is really fun because I don't think we've done this before where we discussed a topic and then brought others in to discuss that who are living in the scholarly realm, who are compadres of each other, but are on different ends of the uh, equation on this. So Rob, introduce people who would just like to hang out with us. I love you and me talking, but usually it's just our wives who want to hang out with us. We have two people who want to hang out with us other than our wives. So this is good news today. Yeah, very good. We are really excited to have Daryl Bach and Gary Burge with us. Daryl is the Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and the Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's the author of over 40 books, uh, including well-regarded commentaries on the Gospel of Luke. Daryl, I think you've written a commentary on the Gospel of Luke for like every possible series that there is. <laughs> That's uh, almost true. <laughs> and the Book of Acts, as well as the historical studies of Jesus. He works in cultural engagement as the host of the Seminary's Table podcast. He was the president of the Evangelical Theological Society from 2000 to 2001. He's a consulting editor for Christianity Today. He serves on the boards at Wheaton and Chosen People Ministries. And then when traveling overseas, he tunes into his current uh, favorite sports teams in Houston. Uh, he's been married for, to Sally for over 40 years and the proud father of two daughters and a son and also as a grandfather. So, Daryl, welcome. Oh, it's good to be with you guys. And Gary Burge is a professor of New Testament at Calvin College. Formerly the professor at Wheaton uh, College and Graduate School, he's written extensively on the Gospel of John, including commentaries on the Gospel of John and First John, the historical Jesus, and the contextual and cultural backgrounds of the first century Judea as a framework for interpretation. He's written several volumes, and Gary, I think you edited the series of the Ancient Context and Ancient Culture series. That's right. Which yeah. it's a fabulous series, guys, and they're really readable, like small, almost. Can I call them booklets, Gary? Will that offend you? No, that'd be fine. They were made okay. to be, they made to feel like tourist guides in your yeah. camp. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. they've generated more sermons around the country than anything I've <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I just, I was just reading from them the half time I was preaching. So, um, yeah. but uh, they're, uh, they're excellent, an excellent series of really fun and readable booklets. So, Gary is also an ordained uh, minister in the Presbyterian Church USA. He's a frequent speaker at conferences, retreats, and churches. And for over 15 years, he served at Wheaton, and while he was there, he was on the, uh, on the teaching staff at Willow Creek Community Church. He's also deeply invested in the Middle East and in churches from Iraq to Egypt and travels there annually. And then he's often called on to speak on the Israel-Palestinian conflict of American churches in denominational settings. So, Gary, uh, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with both of you. All right. And we're going to put some links in the show notes to your books and resources so that people can, can follow up there. So, we wanted to have you on to have this conversation and discussion on Romans 9 through 11 to kind of correct all the mistakes that I may have made. Uh, just kind of give a balanced perspective or, or two different sides of the perspective a little bit. I think there'll be a lot of agreement, but there'll be some disagreement maybe at the end. 
as many of you know, how you read Romans 9 through 11 really impacts how you understand the Jewish people and the modern geopolitical debates surrounding Israel and Palestine. So Vinny and I, as we said, laid a foundation in our last podcast where we discussed Romans 11, which you know really begins with this question, has God forgotten the, Jew you know, the Jewish people or have they been lost, which Paul says in Romans 11, 1. And Romans 11, 11, you know, Meganoito, you know, God forbid, he hasn't forgotten them. They've stumbled, but they haven't fallen for, for good. Uh, but their fallingness or stumbling has allowed the Gentiles to come in. Um, the Israelites, the Jews have been cut off from the tree, but uh, the Gentiles have been grafted in. But someday the Jews will be grafted back in. And that kind of leads to the question. So the key text, uh, let me just go ahead and read it again for uh, our listeners. It's Romans 11, 25 and the beginning of 26 that says in the New American Standard, I don't want you to be, uh, for I do not want you brothers to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. And what Vinny and I did is we framed it as saying, hey, look, there's three questions specifically around this particular statement, and that is, well, who is Israel? What does he mean by all Israel will be saved? And then secondly, what does he mean until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in? Well, what is that referring to there? And then the third question, which is kind of relative to the other, other two, says, you know, when does this occur? Is this occurring throughout history? Is uh, That's kind of the way I presented it. Or is this for like mass end times con uh, conversion of the Jewish people? So we want to kind of give you each an opportunity to kind of address the text or the whole issue as a whole. So I think we drew straws beforehand, and I think Gary won. So for our listeners, Gary's going to go first. Okay. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Vinny. And uh, Daryl, it's good to see you again. We've been friends for quite a long time, the number of years we probably shouldn't count, but uh, <laughs> right. all, the way, all the way back to our doctoral programs. Exactly, Gary. Well, it's good to see you and good to be yeah. with you guys. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Romans 9 through 11 is probably the least appreciated uh, section of Paul's writings uh, inside of the Protestant church. Everyone wants to preach from Romans 1 through 8, and then so the series ends at chapter 8, and no one knows what to do with 9 through 11. In my mind, uh, 9 through 11 is an addendum through 1 through 8. I think 1 through 8 in Romans is cohesive. It begins with a thesis statement in 117, ends with a wonderful benediction in chapter 8. And so I think there's a really clear transition there. In 1 through 8, I think Paul is imagining a debating partner. It is a Jewish person who is a teacher that does not believe in Jesus. And throughout even one through eight, he interrupts himself a number of times in order to address the problems which his critic is going to raise. So in nine through 11, you actually have Paul focusing on some of those critics' concerns. So that's why I think of nine through 11 as an excursus uh, to a book. So 9 through 11 gives you really the development of one theme and it's tackling it full on. So in 1 through 11, Paul asserts that, just as he does in Galatians, he asserts that Jews without Jesus are in jeopardy. That seems to be very clear in Paul's theology. So spiritual security evaporates. And so therefore, as his critics listen to him, they're saying, yeah, but wait a minute. Didn't God make permanent covenants and promises to our people? So, therefore, when you turn to chapter 9, um, Paul takes this on directly. And if you're not in that conversation, it really doesn't necessarily, uh, it isn't necessarily helpful to, uh, to us. We don't tend to think about it very much. 
If you happen to be in the Messianic community, on the other hand, these are critical, critical chapters. So let me just make a list of what I think is going on in 9 through 11. And I think each of these, uh, well, I mean, I think Daryl probably has agrees with most of them. And where we disagree, we'll find out soon enough that Daryl is wrong and I am right. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, the first thing that is clear in 9 through 11 is that the crisis for unbelieving Israel is real. This crisis breaks Paul's heart. And so, if this were simply a trivial matter for Israel, Paul would show little emotion. So, that's the first thing. Israel, unbelieving Israel, has a problem. There is a crisis in front of Paul. Second thing is, Paul is using a remnant theology to show that God's purposes have not failed. So, therefore, he is willing to say that, well, look, even inside of Israel's own history, there have been times in which people have stepped out of God's purposes, and there are those who have been in God's purposes. But I think some key verses that overshadow, there's some key verses in 9 through 11 that we need to hold on to. We all jump to Romans chapter 11, but I know that chapter 9, 6 through 7 are really key verses. Mm-hmm. Descent from Abraham gives no more security to someone who is Jewish than circumcision in chapter 2. In other words, there are descent, blood descent from Abraham or simply the ritual of circumcision are things that you might want to accumulate, but you are not saved by these things. This gives you no security, and Paul makes this clear in chapter 10, verse 1. So this community of Jews who do not have Jesus are really in jeopardy, but the things they rely on are unreliable when it comes to their own righteousness. Third idea, God's sovereignty permits him to have mercy on those whom he chooses. Mm -hmm. So he has mercy on the Gentiles at the present time, and that has caused Israel to stumble. This is a problem for Israel. So therefore, Paul says, Israel has failed because it did not see that righteousness was coming through faith. Israel has failed in chapter 10. So that seems, again, to reinforce this idea that Israel itself is in jeopardy. Fourth idea. The arrival of Christ and the ready embrace of the Gentiles should provoke Israel to jealousy and to faith. And I think this is an ideal for Paul. He's hoping that this would come about. I don't think it necessarily came about. For some Jews, it did. For some Jews, it simply didn't. But he says in 1021, he's describing his own people as disobedient and contrary. So therefore, he sees there's a kind of rigidity inside of his own people that have made them unwilling to step into this world. I just have a couple more things, and then I'll land on 11. But in all of this, Paul wants to be clear, God has not failed. He has not failed. Jewish believers are inside of the church. Gentile believers are inside of the church. And Paul himself represents that remnant, meaning God's activity with Israel has continued to be successful because Paul is in the church and many like him. But he also wants to say that there is something remarkable and and, and miraculous happening in the Messianic age, and it is that the Gentiles have now become a part of the people of God. Hopefully, Israel will be inspired by this. Hopefully, Gentile inclusion will spark Jewish faith, and that's what Paul dreams will happen. Well, for me, chapter 9, 6 through 7 is a key thing, but also I think a really important piece of 9 through 11 is in Romans 11, 
17 through 24. And this is Paul's analogy. He uses an olive tree as his analogy. I, for myself, I think of Abraham as being at the root of the olive tree, but Paul doesn't Mm. say this. But the olive tree grows, and this is the history of Israel. But the critical thing is, Paul says natural branches have been broken off and unnatural branches have been grafted in. What does that mean? It means that there are people who share the ancestry of Abraham and they are no longer on the tree. So that would mean that Israel without Jesus then is not only in jeopardy, but they have broken with the great olive tree of Abraham. Now, this is not just Paul's idea. You can find this in Jeremiah chapter 11, the idea that there is this olive tree and then they'll be breaking off. It's really pretty common. But having said all of that, having talked about the jeopardy of unbelieving Israel, finally in chapter 11, Paul says he has hope. So in Paul's mind, I think there are two parties. There are two parties at work. First of all, there are Messianic Jews like Paul who have joined with Gentiles, and this is what I call Messianic Israel. This is the pruned and grafted olive tree in which God's purposes are flourishing. Secondly, in Paul's mind, there is what he calls in 1125 a part of Israel that has rejected Jesus. It has been hardened. It is broken off of the tree. But in 1128 to 32, Paul has hope. Okay. Now, this, this, at this point, this is where critical Pauline scholars have described what they sometimes have called Paul's great contradiction. How is it that there can be hope for unbelieving Israel when he has just said there's this critical jeopardy? So I don't think that that's really a fair take on Paul. I think for Paul, it's about God's character and covenant faithfulness. And throughout 1 through 8, that's what he wants to say to us, that that God's, God's will, God's desire, God's character is unchanging. So therefore, how is it that we're going to see this hope realized inside of, um, inside of Israel? On the one hand, these Jews who could be inspired to be believers, this might happen through the evangelistic work of the church. That is the view of N.T. Wright. That's a view of a number of people that this is, this is really the church's activity then will bring Israel into the church, and then the people of God will all be saved. On the other hand, there are other people, I would put myself probably in this group, who want to see this as eschatological. So therefore, what Paul is imagining is that at some time in the distant future, at the climax of history, then uh, Judaism will embrace its Messiah. But that is pure speculation, of course. Okay, so these are the things that Paul, in his mind, he has a kind of geography, a spiritual geography for the world. There are Messianic Jews like Paul and the Gentiles who represent the olive tree that comes from Abraham. And then there's this other part that is resisting, that is not accepted Jesus. Now, here are the things I think we cannot say. All right. And this is where I think it'd be fun to have Daryl and I go back and forth. Can Jews claim the Abrahamic promises for themselves if they have no faith in Christ? Mm. That's a very important idea. Right. We, I don't think we can say that. Jews can't claim Abrahamic promises for themselves without faith in Christ because they're not connected to that tree. I think this contradicts Paul directly. It does. 
Second thing I think we cannot say is that Jews are saved without Jesus. I think you have to go back and read Romans 9 and Galatians 3 and Romans 9. Paul is willing to say, I would be happy to trade my own life if mm-hmm. others were saved. In 10.1, he says they are not saved. So therefore, this is not a saving covenant they hold, which is operable. Thirdly, the deep offense here is when the secular Jew, I'm talking about a secular Jew who is not religious, who might live in Israel, representing 75, 80% of modern-day Israel. When the secular Jew in Israel today claims the Abrahamic promises in order to claim land. Well, this land was promised to my ancestor Abraham, and therefore I can make a claim on it. This is entitlement gone wrong. This is not how the covenant promises work. This is a complete misunderstanding of Abrahamic covenant. Abraham's covenant is not transactional. It is relational. So for me, when I begin to think about this, the second category, this other part that has resisted Jesus, there's an analogy in my mind uh, that I think may be helpful. Paul wants to say that this community of Jews without Jesus, they have benefits, they have covenants, they have promises, they have all of these things. And it reminds me of when I was younger, I grew up around a golf course uh, in Southern California, and uh, but my parents never had enough money to belong to the golf course. <laughs> <laughs> but there were those kids who did. And they were kids that grew up on the golf course. They started playing golf when they were five years old. They were there every single day. They had the best coaches. They had the best equipment. They had the coolest shoes. They always had the right shirt. They had Mm -hmm. all of the advantages. They were the low scorers. They were playing scratch golf, but they never came to the tournament. Mm -hmm. They never showed up for the tournament. They had all of the advantages to win if they simply showed up, but they didn't. So therefore, all of the advantages in the world, if they're held in abeyance, they really do prep you for the right celebration, the tournament. And you might take the crown, but you'll never get the crown if you don't show for the tournament. So for Paul, he really sees this as a tragedy. Tragic. It really is tragic. And and so do I. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Gary. Daryl, what do you think? Well, I think the best thing to do is to just walk through and respond to what Gary has um, laid out on the table. And I'll just say there is a lot that we agree on. It's a significant amount, actually. I'm not sure I would call the chapter an addendum because I think it is an extension of the argument of the cosmic nature of salvation mentioned in Romans 8 and the idea of the gospels to the Jew first and to the Gentile in Romans 1. But ha- but that's a minor that's a minor difference. We see the chapter basically dealing with the same problem, which is unbelieving Israel. Uh, the, the section is about unbelieving Israel from the beginning to the end. He's weeping for unbelieving Israel at the mm-hmm. beginning. He's holding out hope for unbelieving Israel at the end. And so I think that that's, that's the movement of the chapter, if you will. Everything that's said about the remnant in between and everything that's said about the centrality of Christ in the middle corresponds to everything that's been said before we ever get to Romans 9 to 11. It is the response to Christ that puts everyone in the place of blessing 
because as Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you need Christ. End of discussion. Mm-hmm. So, so that we're in agreement on that. Uh, the issue is what is chapter 11 doing? What exactly is chapter 11 doing? The core metaphor in chapter 11 is, I, and we agree here, is it looking forward to an aspiration and eschatological hope that Paul has introduced with the term mystery. Mystery suggests right. we're in that apocalyptic, eschatological space. So we're in agreement there. And so the question becomes, what's the metaphor that leads into the statement in 26 and 27 about all Israel being saved, and Israel being saved in a certain manner, which is how this passage transitions. And the metaphor is, as Gary correctly pointed out, that Jews, the natural branches have been cut off, okay, they're not connected to the to the tree, and again, we agree on the tree. I think the tree is basically the Abrahamic promises, the promises of God that go back to Abraham. So, I mean, if you're checking boxes as we go mm-hmm. through this, we're checking the same boxes all the way through. The metaphor is that unnatural branches have been grafted in, Gentiles, and natural branches are excluded. That's unbelieving Jews. We've, we've got the remnant in the background. We've got the establishment that not all Israel is Israel in the background, which allows the inclusion of Gentiles into the promise, etc. All that's going on. All that we're agreed on. So here's what Paul anticipates. Here's Paul's aspiration. This is why he calls it hope. This is why it's not a contradiction. Uh, and that is that he is holding out hope that in some way, one day, the natural branches which have been grafted out will be grafted back in, okay? Mm-hmm. That's, that's what he's articulating in this section of Romans 11 where he's anticipating a response. So his answer is, Israel may be unbelieving now, but there will come a time in an unspecified way that he doesn't tell us that many, 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 many in Israel will, be, will come back in, and they will come back in in such a number that we'll not be talking just about the remnant that we currently have. Okay, I think all that is what what Paul is saying. And then the the discussion that rotates around that is, so what does that mean for how we view Israel? Both Israel to come, including, if I can say this way, restored Israel, I'll use that phrase just to help Mm -hmm. us with where we're headed, versus Israel where she is now, or to use Gary's phrase, the secular Jew, who's outside. You may also have religious Jews who are outside, but still, they don't believe in Christ. But that's, again, a minor point. So, so let's go to Gary's three points. Can Jews claim the Abrahamic promise if they, if they don't have faith in Christ? And I think that Gary would answer the question, no, they can't, okay? And I would say, well, this depends on how Jews term Jews is being used here. In other mm-hmm. words, He's asked the question as if it's framed as an individualistic question. I'm asking the question as if it's framed as a corporate question with this eschatology in view. Mm-hmm. Okay, I will agree with the metaphor that says, unless there's a connection, you don't have access to the benefits. Okay, So you got to show up at the tournament and play. We'll agree with that. But the purview that Paul has in mind in this passage is not an individualistic purview, or not just an individualistic purview. It is a corporate purview. And so that's important to keep in the back of your mind as we're walking through this chapter, because we're thinking about Israel as a whole in Mm -hmm. many ways. 
So we've got this corporate dimension. We've got this time dimension. Are we talking about now or in the future? Okay, if this is eschatological, we're talking about aspiration that is yet to come. So we're talking about a prospect. We're in an eschatological hope mode. And the articulation is that sometime in the future, Israel will come back into play. Now the question that we are left with is, what does that mean as a refraction? Okay, if I've got this hope for Israel in the future, and by the way, one other point of agreement that I should underscore is, is that this passage is about the faithfulness of God and God keeping his mm -hmm, mm -hmm, promises. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. that's, we're, we're absolutely agreed about that. Yeah. But one of the commitments that God made that ends up being debated in all of this is the commitment that God made to the seed of Abraham, by which I mean the physical seed of Abraham, at the very beginning, including, including the offer of uh, a blessing, a blessing to the world through Israel, and the hope of a people in a land. That was all wrapped up in the original promise, and that hope of a people and land was something that was restated through the Old Testament at many points, again and again and again, and the idea that this was not going away was something that was stated as well. So, so you have all those elements that are part of the corporate, future-looking, eventually landing the plane picture of Israel that we see in Romans 9 to 11. And, and so I think the one question that remains, so can a Jew claim Abraham's promise if they are without faith in Jesus individualistically? No, they can't. But is there a corporate hope for Israel that one day foresees that there will be a faith in Christ and therefore Israel will come back into the place of blessing as a result? I answer that question yes. I actually think Gary answers that question yes as yeah. well. Yeah. So, um, so that's the first one. Can Jews be saved without Jesus? We're totally in agreement. Can't be saved without Jesus. End of discussion. Okay, so that's a short one. We can dispense with that one quickly. <laughs> okay, so now, now what do we do? Can secular Jews claim the Abrahamic promise in order to claim the land? Okay, this is the one where I put a star by it because <laughs> I want to check that box, but I can't check that box. Okay? Oh. <laughs> uh, um, because I think that what we're talking about is a corporate promise made to a people and a commitment that God has made uh, about Israel having a place of blessing in the midst of. Now, this, this qualification is actually very important to me. I don't think this hope is a nationalistic hope, which is the way it often gets portrayed. This hope is part of a reconciled hope. Right. It's Jews alongside Gentiles together in yeah. Christ looking forward to a day when shalom comes not just to the land of Israel but to the world but Israel has a place in it that's the only, that's the point that I want to make and so so you have a restored Israel but it's not restored Israel in opposition to the nations it's restored Israel in the face of a reconciliation with the nations that Christ has brought and then of course because I'm I'm premillennial I think this is part of of where history is going uh, this reconciled state that we, that we will that we will be in first for the thousand years and then eventually transitioning into new heaven and new earth. Uh, that was quick. Uh, I did that uh, maybe supersonically. I hope not. But anyway, <laughs> but as you can see, there is actually a lot of agreement about what's going on in Romans nine eleven between us. But there is this one sticking point about how the corporate and eschatological nature of this promise reflects back on how I should think about Jews and their potential for salvation today.
Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it and hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor, if this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know, five stars if you think it's five star worthy, uh, share it with your friends. And we just wanna get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we wanna encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out, and now we'll get back to the podcast. Well, excellent. Thank you. And let's just clarify for our listeners again, we've used this term many times on our podcast, but eschatological basically has this understanding of end times. And the way that I think both of you are, are using eschatological is though it's a almost a future fulfillment prior to the coming of Christ type of mentality. I'm not going to lock you into that, but I'm just simply saying you're using eschatological as something future tense a little bit, even if it might already have some present beginning. Yeah, let me let me let me do it by doing something Gary did earlier, which again is another point where we're in agreement. He cited anti rights, a kind of across time view of this passage, as opposed to a, a resolution in the future idea. Where I think what we're both saying is Paul is anticipating a time. He doesn't know when it is, okay, but he's anticipating a time when there will be a significant enough Jewish response that the concern that he has gets answered in the program and plan of God. Okay. And God will be shown to be faithful to his commitments and promises to the people to whom he originally made these commitments. And, and therefore, his, his real message under an eye is, there, Israel is not without hope, okay? But that hope includes Jesus. Yes. Okay? Yeah. So that's the point that he's trying to make. And so he's foreseeing a time in the future when there is a response, and that's not just the ongoing um, kind of remnant mode that we've kind of found ourselves in and find ourselves in today. No, this is going to be a significant regrafting of original branches back into the tree that resolves the tension that he feels when there's only a remnant. All right. Vinny, I think you had a question you want to start with. Hey, Daryl, question for you. Because uh, yeah. we're obviously hanging out in Romans 9 through 11, but you know this is definitely going to bleed over to areas of eschatology, which are going to you know go to, to other areas. When you mentioned, um, you said God's promise to the physical seed of Abraham and the hope of land, I'm immediately thinking of how Paul addresses this in Galatians 3, where when he's uh, you know clearly mm -hmm. alluding to you know a Genesis 12, Genesis 15 covenantal language, and in Galatians 3. You know, he talks about how, you know, there's the promises were made to off, Abraham and his offspring. And then he goes, you know, later and he's, he identifies this clearly as Christ. And if you're in Christ, you're heirs to the offspring, regardless if you're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, uh, you know, male or female. I'm curious, you use the, you seem to separate it in terms of a physical, which I'm assuming would then, there might be like a spiritual component. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm curious how you would understand that promise as only applying to Israel, because I'm reading Paul in Galatians 3, and it seems to be he's reading it just in a m more unified way. And so maybe you could address that in Gary, if you had a, a maybe a different perspective oh, man, on that after. Maybe, maybe, yeah, I can just sort of echo you, and Daryl, you can just sort of hear from both of us. Okay. Um, yeah, it, I agree with you, Vinny. I mean, I think Paul is clear in Galatians 3 that he is in debate with those who want to see uh, descendants from Abraham simply by blood making a claim on the promises of the covenant. And he rejects that. Connection to Abraham in Galatians 3 is 
The promise to Abraham and to his seed refers to Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, we might debate whether or not Paul has done a very good exegetical job there with this corporate notion of seed. Nevertheless, he wants to narrow this to Christ, and so therefore, you only have access to Abraham through Christ. So really, there is, in Paul's mind, I think we are putting onto Paul something that is foreign to Paul, that there is a physical seed of Abraham and that there is a spiritual seed of Abraham. For Paul, there are just descendants, they're sons and daughters of Abraham, children of Abraham, period, full stop. And that's the olive tree. And so Mm -hmm. everybody who's in that olive tree, yeah, they are truly of Abraham's family. So remarkably, and this is the shocker for Paul, is that it's possible to be connected to Abraham by blood, but be broken off. That's amazing. And Paul can actually make that move only because he sees connection to Abraham spiritually. Hmm. Daryl, where, where do you go? With I them? can accept all of that, but it leaves out one piece that's important. And that is that in the midst of having that point of view, he can also talk about natural and unnatural branches. He can see, he can see, he can have a section of Romans 9 to 11 where he's focused on physical Israel in distinction from spiritual Israel. And the, tr- the issue here is how much of physical Israel has a hope in spiritual Israel and what's that connection uh, that comes through Christ, whether we're thinking about it now or in the future. And so you've got all those elements in play in the conversation. And so Galatians 3 is focused on the unity that comes as a result. And when I was talking earlier about this not being a nationalism, I'm actually reflecting the impact of a Galatians 3 reading on the eschatology. Because the point is not to say there's a physical Israel here that's something distinct from um, mm-hmm. that's something distinct from uh, what is happening in spiritual Israel. I mean, it's a distinct entity, and its relationship to the blessings is directly tied to whether they're connected to Christ or not. But I can identify them as a distinct entity and ask what their status is, which is what I think Paul is doing. And so... So they're in, they're out, there's a mix. I mean, there's all kinds of possibilities for how that can work. And then in the larger question, what we're asking is this, here's what I, here's what I think I'm really after. In the midst of identifying that spiritual Israel includes Jew and Gentile and a reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, and I'm thinking eschatologically, that doesn't mean that Israel has gone off the spiritual map, okay? They're disconnected. But they're not off the spiritual map because there's always hope. And so that unbelieving Jew becoming a believing Jew. Hey, Daryl, you're, you're free. Daryl, you froze twice on us. Okay. So if you want to reiterate that point. Go back. Yeah. Sorry. Where does he I get... actually was trying to go back and redo it. So, <laughs> so let me try it again. Yeah. So, so you've got this group of unbelieving Israel, and you've got this view that says, what about them? And the point that I'm trying to make is just because you have this spiritual entity made up of, of Jews and Gentiles, a remnant of Jews and Gentiles, let me say it that way so it's in the Romans 9 frame, doesn't mean that you've totally forgotten about the Jews who don't believe because there's always the prospect that an unbelieving Jew might become a believing Jew or a mass of unbelieving Jews might become believing Jews, believe in the Messiah, be connected to the promise, etc. And that's actually what Paul's holding out hope for. 
Right. So what has sometimes happened in the discussion of the church, and there have been theologians who have lamented that this has mm-hmm. happened in the church, is the idea that the church is the place of blessing means that, in effect, I can almost forget about Israel. Mm. Okay? And that the Bible will not let you go there because the hope of the gospel is extended to the world, you know, right. until Christ comes back and it's all yeah. resolved. Right. Oh, right. So, Daryl, you're, you're right about that. And actually, we agree about all of that. But how we define the program, let's just sort of se- separate this out clearly for listeners. So there is believing Israel, and by that we mean belief in Christ, Israel, right. and mm-hmm. the Gentiles. We can just set them on the shelf for now. Then there are those who are unbelieving, that means they have rejected Christ and they're Jewish. Okay. In history, what has happened is some have said, well, they are uh maybe not in God's program any longer or our program any longer, we're still, they can be blamed for the death of Christ. And that actually has led to supersessionism. Yeah. In other words, they no longer have any role to play inside of, 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 of God's activity inside of history. So I, I think, though, that group, we have to ask ourselves, um, yes, there is a hope Paul holds out. And that's what makes you and me not supersessionists, because we we are saying that there is a hope, still a purpose for them in history. It's an interim life. It is not, they are not yet attached to the olive tree. And so therefore they live in this place of, of, of blessing, I would want to say, with God. But the hope is eschatological. So the question is, between the arrival of the Messiah and that fulfillment in the eschaton, what is their status? What benefits do they have access to? And what I'm suggesting is, corporately even, you cannot, if you're disconnected from the olive tree, go back and say, Mm -hmm. well, I want to have some claim on the promises of the root, Abraham. I, I just, there's no logic to that. But it does mean that in this interim period between Christ and the eschaton, that there should be no anti-Semitism in the church. Right, right. There should be a respectful relationship going both directions. And there doesn't have to be a competition between these two because God is faithful to his people through history. Yeah. yeah. Let me interject here. I think, if that's okay, Daryl, I, I think I'm going to kind of summarize a little bit of what you both said, and which leads to the question I think that, that Gary is kind of asking that Daryl's anxious to answer also. So first off, let me comment. Um, I agree with Daryl that Romans 9 through 11 is not an addendum. I think it is part of the whole argument that Paul's making. I think the issue is the Gentile believers kind of acting with arrogance. And I think that Paul calls them out in Romans 11. And I think the whole, hey, Israel's been rejected. <laughs> Bummer for you, but we're, we're, in, we're in play now. I think that leads to uh, the argument from Romans 1 through 8 leads, leads to this question. Uh, I would also comment, I don't personally agree with the idea of spiritual physical i think when we get, when we talk about spiritual israel and physical israel we're, we're leading ourselves astray i think those kind of distinctions are an enlightenment and post-enlightenment thinking and rationality and, and the reason why i would say that would be this is what we mean by spiritual israel are those who believe in jesus but what we're saying is those who believe in jesus have been grafted into the tree that makes them physical israel i mean that makes them you know as paul says a jew is not one who is circumcised but but one who ultimately has faith and Derek, so you made the comment earlier that you still believe that you know Israel has a place in it. You also made the comment, obviously, we can't forget the Jewish people. I think our evangelistic call to the nations has to include Israel. And thus, as Gary said, we don't 
uh, support anti-Semitism. That, that's just ridiculous. I mean, the whole idea, love your neighbor, love your enemies, proclaim the gospel to, to all nations. And as Paul says, first to the Jew and then and then to the Gentile. But you made the comment that Israel still has a place in it. And I think you would affirm that the it is still the church, right? Is that what you say? No, that? It's the promise. Okay. Okay. It's the promise thinking about it eschatologically. This actually gets it, I think, the answer to Gary's question. The, 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 the problem that we're facing is answering the question by isolating the time frame that we're, we're thinking about. What is the status of Israel? What is the status of unbelieving Israel now? Okay, yeah. and the answer the answer Gary is giving, which part of which I absolutely affirm is because Israel is unbelieving, she has no access to be, to benefits. Okay, at least that's that's what I think I'm hearing. Covenant, uh, covenant okay. okay, so but what I am saying is this promise is eschatological, and God's made a commitment to Israel about this land. Okay. Eventually, she's going to have a have a place in land, and I think the the issue here is what's the timing of that? I actually don't think we know the timing of that, in in the sense that we know that eventually Israel will have have a promise, uh, have a role in the land. There are other passages that we haven't mentioned that are part of this this idea. So Israel, even though she's in unbelief, is not without hope, and the hope is tied to Christ. But she's not without hope, and it's also a hope that's tied to commitments that God has made for commitments that God has made for the nation and for that people. And this is why physical Israel is an important thing to keep on the table and not just say, well, the moment a Gentile believes, they become physical Israel. No, the reason you keep the title is to keep that move from, ha from confusing people, okay? Um, there is a role for for ancestors of Abraham, I'll say it that way, not okay. spiritual ancestors of Abraham, but right, ancestors right. of Abraham that need, would they need to be kept on the map uh, in terms of where they are in this conversation. Right. Darrell, the question is, when they're on the map, what, that's not, I, I don't think that's in dispute. They're on the map, for sure. The question is, what role do they play while they're on the map? What benefits do they get on the map? So I don't think you or I or either, none of, none of us are saying they should be removed from the map. I'm not sure what that would mean anyway. The church, in Paul's mind, is the people of God connected to Israel's history all the way back to Abraham. So that means that the church actually makes is made up of Messianic Jews and Gentiles who are all sharing the title children of Abraham, sons of Abraham. So in as much as that's true, then if somebody asks me today, who are the successors of God's purposes in the Old Testament, I would have to say the church. I have to say that because of all of the language of the New Testament for the, for the church. But those who, uh, whom we want to keep on the map, I can't imagine, I can't, I can't make this, this step. If they are disconnected from Abraham and Paul's thought, then that means they are disconnected from the covenant of Abraham. Now, my position would actually be much more difficult. Here, I'm going to give one away to all of you. <laughs> my position would be much more difficult when you were to pre present me with maybe a Jew who does not believe in Jesus, but who shares the faith of Abraham and lives a deeply pious faith of 
acknowledging the grace of God and living a life mm. of faith. Mm-hmm. Does not rely on the works of the law, as Paul says, but really does share Abraham's faith, trusting God fully. That would be really an interesting question for me. Mm-hmm. But when it comes, say, to the modern state of Israel, we all know that it is a deeply secular state. The vast majority of these people are not even practicing going to synagogue. So here I have a very different problem. I have got my stereotypical Israeli citizen who is could be an atheist, an atheist who is saying, because I share the bloodline of Abraham, I get this piece of property. For me, I think that that is to exploit religion in its worst way. Yeah, and I think, again, I think that what we're getting here is a fusion between the individual access of blessing and the corporate intent of what a land and a nation is supposed to be. So we still have that we still have that problem in the in the conversation that we're dealing with. The question of a land is a question not just of an individual benefit but of a corporate benefit. Obviously in any corporate benefit you've got a mixture of people who are in different um, spiritual and, and religious spaces. That just comes with the territory of the corporateness. But the the commitment that is made the commitment that's made to Israel and the land is a commitment to a people and to a nation, not, not to every single individual in the group. Now, granted, there's a benefit that comes to any individual who's in the land, I'll acknowledged. But the, but the point of the exercise is, and this is what it means to say, let's not take Israel off the map, because, because there are commitments and promises that God has made about, about Israel to physical Israelis, I don't know how else to say this mm-hmm. other than this way, um, uh, about, about the commitment that's made to them in the midst of blessing the world. Right. So it's like there are layers of, of these benefits that are laid out, some of which are directed very directly, uh, uh, at least initially with a focus on Israel, and some of which benefit everybody. Now, the, what complicates this and what I'm acknowledging in saying this is not nationalism is, is ultimately this land, which becomes a, a special haven of peace for Israel on the one hand, is part of a larger program, a larger program of peace that's going to encompass the entire world. You know, so one of the discussions that often happens when we get into this space is, well, wait a minute, we're not just talking about the land now, we're talking about blessing over the entirety of the world. Romans 4 gets brought into the discussion, et cetera. I'm going, yep, we're there. And, and the picture that I have, let me go ahead and introduce these Old Testament passages because they're important. Mm-hmm. There are passages in places like Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 19 mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. picture Jerusalem as the hub of the place of peace that, that it encompasses the entire world. And we have, in 19, we have the picture of a highway running from Egypt through Jerusalem to Assyria. Okay, I call it the M1, you know, and uh, and in that passage, there's an address to Egypt, Israel, and Assyria, all as God's people, all expressed in slightly different ways, but all making the point they're all God's people. So this ultimate reconciliation is part of what we are what we are seeing and part of what we are talking about. Now let me come back to the idea that Israel, as a secular state is not in a place of blessing. And, and again, I, I think the way I would say it is, 
Israel as a secular state is still morally and ethically responsible for how she conducts herself. And so that becomes an important part of this conversation as well. It's not Israel is right no matter what, or Israel has a blanket, has such a blanket right to the land that they can treat anyone in the land in any way, any, any and every way they want. No, there still is an ethical dimension and commitment that Israel ought to have because, because of a claimed relationship with God, uh, even at that level. Uh, that should make them responsible for how they treat people in line with what with what they affirm to be their own scripture. So I would agree. Yeah, Daryl, I think I'm with you on um, all of that. Yeah, I, I simply I simply want to let the modern secular state of Israel be a nation like other nations. That's mm-hmm. all. It's very simple. You you abide by the United Nations. You have moral and ethical conduct in the world. You treat your citizens well. You treat others well. It's not really a political or ethical position that I'm arguing for. It's when someone takes one nation out of the entire world and says they have theological privileges, that they have an identity which goes directly to God, and they're a secular state. Uh, no, I, I I think that it isn't say, anti-Israel to say, look, I just want to make you one with all the others in the world. It is simply to bring Israel out of a theological position which claims exclusivity. And that's what you have going on. In, in, in well, the- there are two things going on here. I would get two responses. One is, that would be wonderful if you didn't have neighbors around Israel who said, mm-hmm. you have absolutely no right to that land and I want to wipe you I want to wipe your existence off the face of the earth. So that's that's one element of that equation. But that would, be, is, that would be a political answer to that. The thing is, no, no, we don't treat you that way. You don't treat us that way. You try to treat us that way. We've got a military that will take care of that. So the trouble, the trouble that you've got is, is you've got people in the region who, who believe that that is also their land, okay, and their land in such a way that Israel doesn't have the right to be there, okay? And may, in some cases, argues that Israel either never or forfeited the right to be there, depending on how you want to frame that part of the conversation. So you've got that element in the equation. That's just the political reality. So we're agreed that that's I'm just, that I'm, just trying, I'm just moving toward a theological proposition. But my point is, is that the theological justification for Israel being in the land as a people in that location is rooted biblically in what God did in offering the land to begin with. Right. Let me, can I comment? We've got to, we're going to finish up here in a few minutes, guys. We only have like about 10 minutes left, if that's okay. We, we can go longer all, all we want. <laughs> you know, and I have the mic anytime I want it. So I, I've tried to let you guys uh, go. Um, I find it interesting that the land has become such a central part of this conversation. I think that's interesting. My disagreement with both of you, actually, is I don't think this is eschatological in the context of of what you're using eschatological. I think eschatological in the sense of the entire New Testament period is eschatological from the time of Christ until until today. I think this is happening and being fulfilled throughout history. But with that, then, I think it's happening throughout history, and it's not going to be like this end times mass regathering of of Jewish people to, to Christ. Because I think that, then I see that the fulfillment is them being gathered into the church, I mean, being gathered back into the olive tree, which is the people of God, which is the Abrahamic promise. And so I find that the segregating the land as the separate discussion that non 
Jesus believing Israelite or Jewish people still have claim to the land outside of Christ. I find that interesting that the conversation has kind of gone that way. And so I, I think this obviously is more of a question for Daryl than a, or more of a, a statement for Daryl to, to respond to. But I don't see, that doesn't mean that I deny the right of Israel to exist as a nation. I'm just simply saying they can exist as a nation, but they don't have claim to that land as fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise unless it's through Jesus. So would you, what do you think of that? Oh man, I'd love to answer that question. Okay. Because right? now we're in this now we're in the discussion of where it needed to go, which is okay. we make Christ the fulfillment. So what does the fulfiller have to say about all this? Okay. This takes us into texts that connect us to what both Jesus taught and what the early apostles taught, at least what the way I think they frame it. Jesus said at one point, I declare uh, I declare your house desolate until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, that's Luke 13, 33, uh, 34 and 35 in the parallel of Matthew uh, 23. You had to start with Luke first, by the way. Yeah, right? I, I, always, always. Great gospel. Anyway, yes, yes. so uh, also the orphan of the gospels, but that's another podcast. Uh, and So that until is a very important remark because okay. what it is doing is it's holding out the very hope that I think Paul is expressing in Romans 9 to 11, okay. that Israel's history and story is not done. Right. And, that, and it's actually one of three until passages in Luke-Acts. Second one comes in the Luke conversion, the Olivet Discourse, where it talks about until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, uh, and, and it talks about Jerusalem being overrun and being a city of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And your opposition, as you know in Scripture, whenever you're talking about times of Gentile, whenever you've got Gentiles on the other end, you're going to have Jews. So you've got that part of your calendar marked out. And then in a very important text, actually it's a combination of texts between Acts 1 and Acts 3, Peter gets up and talks about heaven holding, uh, holding the, he talks about the times of restoration that come as a result of repentance. Acts, and Acts, Acts chapter 3. Acts listening. chapter yeah. 3, verses 18 to 22. 22 yeah. uh, until the times of restoration come. And he says, and you can read about those times of restoration in the prophets, mm -hmm. in the scriptures of old. Which tells you, this story, at least the outlines of it, have already been revealed for us. Okay, we don't have to, we don't have to review what that's about. We've been told the outlines of that story. And the outlines of that story include some of the passages I alluded to earlier, which reference the centrality of Jerusalem. The idea that Jesus comes back to the Mount of Olives puts you in a location, okay, in a geographical location, that kind of thing. So all these elements come together to say that, that Jerusalem is going to be a hub for the full spiritual activity and benefits coming to the world. That's important as well as a part of this conversation. And then just to side with Gary against you, Rob, on the on the eschatological thing. <laughs> okay. Okay. Just so it's my podcast, our, so I'm going to edit this out just so you know. <laughs> so I understand, but all but so that all our positions are clear. Okay. Is the reason you say this is eschatological and not just through time, is because of the way Paul frames it in Romans 11. Okay. okay. He's looking forward. He he sees a situation in which a remnant is the way Jewish blessing is happening to Jewish people in the current time. Right. There's a remnant that believes, but he's anticipating a reversal 
back to the way kind of thing the way things were that's what he's anticipating in Romans 11 and he's looking forward to that he's not saying that's happening right now he's anticipating that's going to happen at some point and so um, that's why I'm I'm hesitant to drop out. I think I think you put yourself in the Tom Wright bucket uh, that Gary described. I think a little bit, yes. Yeah. But you know what? Yeah. I, so, I don't, Daryl. I wouldn't reversal. I wouldn't. No, if I'd say reversal, I would say uh, a consummation. In other words, Paul looks forward eschatologically to a time when those broken branches are grafted back in. So, but it's a reversal because they were there originally. They were cut out, and now they're back in. That's what's right. seen but they're grafted right next to Gentiles. So the point is, the the story is about the tree. It isn't mm -hmm. about the branches. It's about the tree will have an ongoing life. It's not an either or, it's a both and. The story is about the tree. It's also about the branches. What, you, what you're trying to say, which I would accept, is that those branches now are not just, if you mean, uh, maybe I'll help it this way. I don't, by reversal, I didn't mean to say we're going back to where we were. Regression. By reversal, I mean the status of Israel, of uh, physical mm -hmm. Israel, a bulk of them being outside, now coming back in. That's where the reversal is. Right, right. But it's not a reversal going back to the way things were. No. The tent into which they now come back in is called Christ. Exactly. We're, we're in agreement there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why for me, it's like, whoa, it's not reversal. It is... Uh, you know, it is it is something different. It's something new that hasn't ever happened before. Well, it's it's reversal from the standpoint of the way things were at one time for the Jewish people and where they are now. If when they come back to belief, okay, they come back into a position where they're connected to the promise. They were connected to the promise in anticipation originally. Now they're connected. And the the term consummation is a perfectly good one. Yeah, now they're yeah. connected in, in terms of consummation. Yeah. Hey, guys, as we wrap this up, uh, I, I have a question that just kind of brings it home from the practical level because there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be listening to this and now they're wrestling with all these questions and they're seeing, mm -hmm. you know, two respected scholars who many of people in the church have read your guys' popular works so they're familiar with your. But I have a question. I'm imagining the congregation that just, you know, it, you're, every congregation, you're going to have a mix of uh, different believing people. And if we want to like overly categorize it as a binary, like there's maybe dispensational and covenantal folks, let's just keep it there. It's just for sake of, you know, argument for simplicity. But when you have the congregation that just might be mixed, or maybe you have the, uh, the congregation of which has had a senior pastor change and the old pastor might've been dispensational, mm -hmm. the new pastor's covenantal. And you have these mixed congregations and you have uh, maybe maybe the one group of people who says, "Man, I can't believe that they're harping on Israel all the time. It's just a political thing." They, you know, maybe the covenantal voice to give a caricature, and they're really struggling with that uh, perspective. Or on the other side, the maybe a dispensational-minded thinker might be saying, "Man, I can't believe that this new guy isn't taking Israel seriously." You know, and, and this this literally becomes an issue why churches split and why people leave congregations and why there cannot be fellowship within local congregations. It's like one of a thousand reasons why they leave churches. I, exactly. Yeah. Right. Just, yeah. Just one of a thousand. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but I'm the curious. Music maybe being more important. He's hoping yeah, to eliminate one of them, Rob. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> the, the, so carpet both, color, the color of the walls, the yeah. hymns. Those are like way down the list 
Yeah, for, for both of you, though, ahead, what ahead. kind of, like, obviously you both have shaded, uh, stated your experiences and your, your thoughts, or not experiences, but you've stated your thoughts. How would you encourage people on both sides of the equation mm -hmm. who are fellowshipping within a congregation, who are church members, who are both stating that they're finding their identity in Christ, yet they're willing to split over this? How would you challenge both sides? Like, Daryl, how would you challenge, like I said, maybe the covenant? don't split over this. It's simple. Okay. I mean, you don't split over this. This is, I mean... Look at look at what we've got here. Um, uh, Gary and I have been in this conversation for decades. We have we have shared in a lot of ministry together. Um, you know, we were both at different roles at Wheaton at the same time, and, and we've worked side by side as believers in the midst of this conversation all this time, knowing very well. I mean, Gary and I go back to lunches that we used to have when we were graduate students talking about this stuff together with other colleagues who are also in this conversation uh, in, in slightly different modes. I mean, there's, um, uh, Craig Blomberg was a part of the mix as a, as a store promoter. Bill Mounts was a part of the mix. So, I mean, it, you know, so, and, and we've continued to stay in touch with one another and interact with one another. We're in a group. In fact, Rob knows this because he's responsible for the group. We're in a group that meets together monthly that talks about this stuff and tries to figure out what's the best way for to help the church understand this conversation, which is why we're doing this right now. Yeah, right. And to see, I think, to see how much agreement there is between us is actually as valuable as to mm -hmm. appreciate the nature of some of the differences that we have. And I actually think by doing that, we help each other. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. we, we help each other because... because Gary has a set of concerns, some of which come out of some very direct experiences, real experiences that he's had in his life that, that I can appreciate on the one hand. He knows what my background is that causes me perhaps to be drawn in the way that I'm drawn, etc. And we just have that mutual understanding and appreciation that underneath everything, what really connects us to each other is our absolute shared and total commitment to Christ. Mm. And, and so... Um, you know, so that's what I, that, that's what I would say. It's not, it, it's, it's worth the conversation, but it's not worth dividing over. Mm. That's great. Gary, you have thoughts on that? Yeah. Vinny, so Daryl, I appreciate everything that you said. And I, yeah, and I have always treasured our friendship and I do remember those days of conversation now a hundred years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are. Um, in an eschatological way of an eschatological way. <laughs> a thousand years for the Lord. So, yeah. Vinny, I actually, I, I think it's not the 60s, not the 70s anymore. And I don't think the average person in church knows the difference between covenant mm -hmm. theology and dispensational mm -hmm. theology. Mm -hmm. Those things used to be parsed very carefully mm -hmm. once upon a time. And um, there's some segments of the church, I'm sure, where that is still going on, and we're talking about prophecies, and we're talking about putting a time clock on the rapture and all that kind of thing. But thats I, I think that's increasingly becoming a smaller and smaller group. For me, um, I think what's uh, unfortunate is that Israel has just become another dog whistle inside of the church, like so many others. And the modern state of Israel is presents important international political questions. And really what happens in the church when Israel becomes a dividing issue, the church is really debating politics and not theology. That's what I've seen countless times. 
And I think we've got probably 12 issues at least inside of the church where they don't have as much theological grounding as we'd like to think. And they have just become political identifiers. And inside of the evangelical church, we've already seen that this is this is uh, cost us a very high price inside of the church. My answer to this would be much akin to, I don't know, um, my answer to any of those other 12 issues that we really need to figure out where we find our unity and our unity is in Christ. And, and we really mm-hmm. cannot gain our unity or find or pursue our unity uh, from the uh, very temporary political issues of our day. Amen. And let's wrap this up with just a reminder that one of the things that we have stressed today is our agreement that Christ is who he is, the fulfillment of God's covenant promises, um, and our Lord and Savior, and that uh, salvation is through him, as well as our love for the Jewish people and, of course, the Palestinian people who weren't really discussed implicitly today, as well as our love for all people and the unity of the church and its centrality there. I think what we should do, guys, is we should schedule a lunch in the New Jerusalem when we all get together there, and then we can look back, and some one of us is going to be able to say, I told you so. Right? So as I long think as that's the lunch the serves Arab falafel. That'll be fine. <laughs> I'm in on that. Well, I think, sorry, because the yeah, truth if of life it meets at the King David Hotel, I won't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I've always thought that I'm the there, tree of day. life has uh, pepperoni pizza <laughs> hanging from it. So I'm not sure what else uh, the, the option. So, but uh, thank you very much for your time and attention. Like I told you, it would only last about 30 minutes. I figured we could solve this. And so, uh, but uh, thanks so much for your friendships and for your time and for this conversation. And maybe we'll come back and circle around to it some other time in the future. So Vinny, you want to take us home? Yeah. Just to say thanks to everyone for listening. This was definitely, this got into the weeds at times. Hopefully everyone was uh, being blessed and edified by what we're talking about. Listen to this one a few times, because I think this is a great episode. I'm definitely going to be sharing this with a number of people. So hope you're liking it. Comment on it. Let us know how it's blessing you. We'll see everyone soon. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.